Chad was mentioning uh, our first times together, um, they don't do justice to those times when we would meet 12 years ago. I'd never known a moment like that. We were just talking about the holiness of God, saying, you know, holy, 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 what you see in Isaiah 6. And I can tell you that prior to my sort of faith journey to the Central Coast, a very little of that was etched on my soul. In 2 Corinthians 4, we talk about the glory of God being poured out into our soul uh, uh, through the gospel. And that was something in my life before that point that had happened just in the smallest measure. But I know when I came up here, it was part of a journey. And in those times with Chad early in the morning, that just began to be poured into my soul in a way that I never knew. And that statement in Isaiah 6 where the angels are singing on repeat, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. There's a way you can interpret the next phrase that says, let the whole earth be full of his glory, his glory. In other words, the angels are saying, we have seen the majesty and the excellence of the glory of God. And we can't imagine one square inch of the created universe where that's not being reflected and magnified. That's the spirit of heaven. They've seen the glory of God, and apart and different from this generation, it'll become its own message. I mean, get got to my message. This generation is turning away from Jesus because they find him uncompelling. The angels who see the face of God can't imagine a square inch where the majesty of God is not being exalted. And I know at times I don't feel that in my heart. And I love something that happened as I got here, and they were practicing. Chad is over here, and he's got all this tech on his head and those things that he puts in his ears. And he said, turn up the, the violin guy. <laughs> and he said, I need more of that in my head. And I thought, man, that's it. When the glory of God is ebbing in my spirit, I need to hear more of this in my head. I hear so much other noise we hear so much playing, and there's some glory over here that God wants to sing into our head, and we need to turn that up so that we have that sp the spirit of the angels, and we sing along with them in that chorus, right? All right, well, that has nothing to do with where I'm going, but that was just stirring in me. One of the things that's changed over the years since I've been coming to see Chad is now I use these things, um, the glory of getting older. Um, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 15, I mean 1 John chapter 5. If you get 1 John 15, let me know, if you find it. Uh, we're going to be in 1 John 5, and in some respect, this is not a message, uh, and typically in the way that I give it. I kind of just want to talk to you kind of like out of my journal. Look, man, you've got a pastor who speaks to you faithfully. I, I love hearing Chad every week. And so I, I, I've, I've come this week to do something a little bit more, di a little different. In Acts chapter 3, you see, you know, uh, Peter and John, you know, with a lame man. He says, you know, hey, asking for alms. And they say, hey, we don't have silver and gold, but what we have we're going to give to you. And this morning, I sort of want to give what I have. Paul says in Romans 15, 18, I will not speak except for the thing that Christ is doing in me. And so I want to give you the things that are kind of hot off the press in my life. Hebrews 11 talks about the fact that God grants us a testimony. 
There's something that he's doing in our life, and he's forming us, and he's moving us because he wants, you to, he wants to grant you something. As a witness, he's giving you a testimony that he intends you to speak and to carry in his purposes in the world, right? So God is granting me a testimony. There's something that he's doing in me, but I'm going to tell you right now, it's not fully formed. I'm kind of sharing this kind of out the gate, and I'm kind of, I'm kind of struggling with it. I'm kind of, Lord, I don't know that I know how to walk in this way yet, but this is what I think you're trying to teach me. And so I'm just going to kind of share it humbly with you, saying I don't understand all the implications of this. I don't understand the bounds of this, but it's something at my life. I'm 55. After 35 years of ministry, he's been pushing on me. He's been pushing on my wife, Katie, also in the same sphere. There's something that he wants us to learn, and it's in this realm. And it sort of, we can tie it into 1 John 5. The thing I want to talk to you about is mountain-moving prayer. Now, that's an idea or a concept that's going to be not new to anybody here. Faith of a mustard seed, move mountains, right? But there's something I think that all of us know when we, when we come to the Word of God and we see the incredible promises that God has given us in the realm of prayer. You turn to John chapter 14 and Jesus is speaking and he says, Look, you think that all the things that I'm doing are incredible? When I'm gone, you will do even greater things. Anything you ask in my name, this thing will I do, that the Father may be glorified. The Father is going to be glorified by answering the prayers of his people to such a degree and with such magnitude that what we do as a praying people will exceed what Jesus did. That's an incredible promise. That's an earth-shaking promise. That quickly moves us out of the realm of Christianity as an ethic, a worldview, or a philosophy. Christianity can only be the supernatural power of God breaking into this world, doing incredible things, because that was the promise of the Son. And he etched that promise, if you will, in the blood of the cross. He went to the cross with the idea that we, becoming a part of his body, through prayer would do greater things. I think of other promises, the picture of Revelation chapter 8, the picture of the prayers of the saints ascending to heaven, being mixed with the coals of the altar, being thrown back down on the earth. And the, the idea there is that it's the prayers of the saints that God has intended to push his purposes forward in the affairs of this world. So as you're reading all this incredible activity, the thing that's crucial is not what's happening on Fox News or CNN or anything like that. What's crucial is what's happening in the prayer room. God is saying, I've chosen divinely, sovereignly, to use the prayers of the saints to move my purposes forward. Ezekiel 36, I actually preached on this in Santa Maria three, four years ago at Chad's church, which would be, for some of you, your church. Um, in Ezekiel 36, God tells us, hey, this is the thing I'm going to let you do. I'm going to let you call on my name until I do the very thing I intend to do. I'm going to let, 
I'm going to give you the chance to ask me to do the very thing I already intend to do for you. So the scriptures are, are filled with these incredible promises of what God accomplishes through prayer. For us, part of the immediately, immediate struggle with this is that that kind of prayer disconnects with our experience of prayer. I went to a Christian school when I was in high school. We had to pray before every class. That was the most boring thing that ever happened in the course of the day, in the course of my high school education. We just prayed the same old stuff day in and day out. It's like when I grew up, I grew up in a quasi-Russian family. We said Russian prayers before. I can still tell you these prayers in Russian. So for 15 years, we said two prayers at every meal. One or the other, I could choose. That kind of prayer and what Jesus is talking about here have nothing in common. It's like the old commercial, this is not your father's Oldsmobile, right? So when Jesus is talking at prayer, we have to just pause and say, look, he's opened a door to something. I don't know if I've experienced it. I don't know that I've seen the hand of God move in this kind of way. There's a promise even about the coming of the kingdom in Isaiah 41 where the Lord says, look, I'm going to move with such magnitude as I take the water, as I take a barren wilderness and turn it into springs of living water, that the nations will see and consider together that the hand of the Lord has done that. Look, it's not going to take a bumper sticker that says, done by Jesus. It's going to take looking at a person and saying, there's no explanation for what I see in that gathering. There's no explanation for what I see in that life except for the fact that Jesus must have risen from the dead, and the power of that resurrection is the only credible explanation for what I see in that wilderness becoming a stream of living water. This is what God promised in the coming of the kingdom, in the coming of his son, and the kind of activity that he promised to do as a people gathered together to pray. In two weeks, I'm going, I speak at YWAM, so I'm going to speak at a YWAM base. My last trip to YWAM, I had a guy in my van, uh, Robert, and Robert had been a church planter in Egypt, Lebanon, and I want to say India. And he was in my living room, and he, man, I just plugged this guy's brain for eight hours, driving and coming back. Because he, he was telling me stories I could not grapple with. And one thing I'll never forget was this. He said, Rick, he said, we knew as we saw God move that the leaders of our movement in nine months hadn't even come to faith yet. Like, I said, Robert, I can't even think that way. That the leaders of the movement you knew were going to come to faith and rise up with such incredible, with the power of the Spirit that they would be leading the movement in nine months in those countries. That's God moving in a way that cannot be explained apart from the hand of God. We've gotten used to, well, that's easily explainable. That guy has good gifts, personality, they have resources. It's sort of like looking at five loaves and two fish and feeding seven people. Like, I can get that. That kind of works for me. You know, okay, that, that adds up. But that's not the coming of the kingdom. 
It's not five loaves, two fish, seven people. It's 5,000 people. It's a different kind, it's a different way of being and doing things. I can already say, see, I'm going to run out of time. And I haven't even... So we look at that promise, but then we look at the day and age in which we live. If you were at the men's conference, how long ago was that, Chad? Oh, oh wow, a year ago. Man, time flies. Uh, Tyson was in town, if you were there. Anybody here for that? Anybody at that? John was talking about we're in a season described by Barna as we're facing the irreversible decline of the church. I don't know if you remember that statement. In other words, instead of manifesting the glory of God, the church is falling asleep. The church is bunting. The church is diminishing and waning and regressing, and we're closing doors. We're seeing the exact opposite of what Jesus seems to promise in all these great promises. And so this has been sitting in me. And I've been reading recently, I, I've been reading things, okay, okay, it's just a kind of, it's just a hobby. I'm, I'm trying to study pre-flood society, uh, culture. And you think, how can you do that? Didn't that all get wiped away by the flood? Isn't that the whole point? Well, there seems to be some kind of evidence out there that part of what we see out in Machu Picchu and Egypt and places like that in these massive stones are things that actually date prior to the flood. That there's a civilization whose knowledge has disappeared and that kind of reflects the biblical story. Because now you go to a place like Machu Picchu and places like that and they're looking at rocks. I was gonna even uh, give a picture to Chad to put up and I just forgot to do it. Of stones that weigh between 750,000 pounds and a million pounds. Okay, a million pounds that they get up to places like Machu Picchu. Now, do you, you, know, you know where Machu Picchu is? It's high, it's like 14,000 feet or something like that. There was a king at, in Machu Picchu who at one point wanted to try to get a stone like that up there. Because when you see the building, you'll see these base of stones that are massive. And on top of that are smaller stones. So as you get deeper or as you get down to like the foundational level, level, you find higher sophistication. As you rise up, it becomes uh, simpler. And so they try to get the stone up there, and they realize as they got most of it, 20,000 people tried to get this massive stone up the hill. They got it a part of the way. The stone rolled, it was like a zigzag, rolled down, killed 3,000 people on the way down. They never got it up there. And so we look at a stone like that. If we're standing there, it wouldn't work for me to say, okay, Bob, you get on that side. Chad, you get on that one. We're going to lift this 750,000 you know, pound stone. Just give us a couple you know, big sticks and with leverage and <laughs> some ropes, we're going to move this thing, let alone get it up a mountain. To me, that's a picture of still what we're trying to church today. Jesus has, has, prom has promised incredible things in the coming of the kingdom. He's promised to move stones. He's promised that things like mountains would be cast into the sea. He's promised to move with a magnitude that the five cities would look at and say, there's no explanation for what I see in those people other than the hand of the Lord has done it. In the same way we look at a 750,000 pound stone and say, there's no explanation for that 
by conventional means. That's a whole, I don't want to go down that path how I think that actually happened, but and in some respect, I have no idea. Neither did they. But this is, the, this is the time in which that we're faced with. We're faced with mountains that need moving. We're faced with a culture that needs addressing and a, a period of time in the church that needs igniting. And what we've conventionally done, especially if you've been around for a while, in the church for recent decades is not going to be sufficient to move that stone into the sea. But Jesus has said, my kingdom is, is a group of people who operate with counterintuitive different methods. They've come to believe something different. And what they believe about who I am carries the p- capacity to move not just mountains into the sea, but people out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of God's beloved son. Move people out of blindness and into spiritual sight. Move people out of bondage. Look, if we live in a culture, if Generation Z, Gen Z is marked by something, this new emerging culture, it's bondage to a host of things. What's going to move them out of that and make them flourishing warriors in God's kingdom. It's the power of God beginning in prayer and then through us. This is the hope of the church, I believe. And it begins in a kind of prayer that I think we've only made, I feel like I've only made marginal strides into. So I want to read the passage. Uh, By the way, you can tell I speak at YWAM. I get three hours at YWAM. I feel, like, uh, <laughs> I feel like Princess Bride where he only knows how to fight crowds. You know what I'm Andre the Giant, you know? Like, I only know how to preach three hours, folks. Get, just get over it. All right, so 1 John. First John 5, 13 through 15. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. I've got three things I want to talk about, three just obser- three observations I want to make about this passage. But I'm going to put some weight on the first one and just make a comment or two about the other two. The first thing I want you to see is that this begins with me work. And this is probably the area where I feel like God is pressing in on me the most. Here's the point I want to make about that. So it begins with me work, stuff inside of me. Before I can pray boldly, and what I mean by that is Hebrews 4.16, coming boldly to the throne of grace. So whatever it means, so I think we need to reconsider what it means to pray boldly. Because I don't think it means to pray with volume. It doesn't mean to pray with pace. It's something else. Before I can pray boldly in that kind of way, I need to, to become the kind of person 
who is able to know and receive God's will revealed inside of me so that I can pray, like James 5 says, the prayer of faith, because I know what the will of God is, and so I'm able to pray the prayer of faith because I have confidence and boldness in what God has shown me to be his revealed will. If we listen to church history, it tells us this is what God has done time and time again with our great heroes of the faith. Uh, George Mueller, I'm a great fan of George Mueller. Anybody know about George Mueller, the, the missionary and Brist- the pastor of Bristol to the, um, the orphan and the, he housed the orphans. Mueller read Psalms 68 and he read that God was a father to the fatherless. And so based on that, Mueller knew with no money that he could take that, if you will, to the bank. He knew he could claim that, though he saw no resources in front of us. And he knew that that was so much the heart and will of God that he could sort of leverage that in prayer. And through which God would be glorified, the church would be encouraged to believe again, and these orphans would be blessed. And that's exactly the case. And even as great funds would come to George Mueller, there's like when you read the story of Hudson Taylor, you come to these references where Hudson would receive, by today's standards, like $50,000 to support missionaries in central China. And that was George Mueller emptying the bank for the orphans with one note. He said, the God who supplied this once will supply it again. You need this. You have to believe this is the will of God. Mueller was convinced that the work in China was the will of God. He was convinced that the orphanage was the will of God. And so he knew he could generously give radically, knowing that God would meet him in that point, which is what he did. Amy Carmichael. Anybody know Amy Carmichael? I'm reading her biography again. I read it 35 years ago. Anybody know Amy Carmichael? She has a book called A Chance to Die. It was written by Elizabeth Elliot. Okay. I recommend it. She was same era. That was like the golden era of missionaries in the 1800s. She would come to a place where she would pray, God, I'm going to this city over here. What's your will to be? What are you wanting to do here today? And she would feel God say, pray for one. And so she would pray for one, and that day she would go out and one would be saved. And then she would go to this city, and she would go, what do you want to do in this city? And she heard, Lord, pray for two. So she prayed earnestly for two, and two people came to faith. And then it went to four people, and then eight people. She was, this was happening in India. She would go out. She would feel God reveal to her what he wanted to do in these instances, in these places. And so she could pray the prayer of faith fully convinced that this was what God wanted to do. And then God showed up and did what John 14 said, greater things than these will you do. Amy Carmichael did them because she knew the will of God, as did George Mueller in those situations, and so they prayed them. You can read about Peggy and Christine Smith. They're the two older women through whom God, who God used to bring in the Hebrides revival. They came to Isaiah 41. You already heard me quote it about the passage where God says, in the coming of the kingdom, I will turn a wilderness into springs of water. They looked at the church in the Hebrides, which was principally a Presbyterian church, 
And they said, Lord, our church is dead. We are the barren wilderness. But you've promised in the coming of the kingdom that you would turn it a wilderness into springs of water. And so these two older women, 82 and 84, it's never too late. One blind, one has rheumatoid arthritis. You're never too jacked up to stop praying for God's kingdom. These two women prayed, and their prayer was the revelation prayer that got mixed with the coals of the altar. They got thrown back onto the earth through which God moved. Peggy and Christine Smith knew the wisdom of moving people through God. Moving people through God. Look, the point, the point here, <laughs> this is a two-part sermon. In nine months, I'll be back to del deliver the, the other part. Um, is what he says in verse 13. I've written these things to you. Look, I'm getting to the point now where I'm going to talk to you about incredible things that God has made available to you. But I've already written to you about a bunch of things. I've written to you about the need for a transformed life. I've already written to you in chapter 2 about the need to abide in him so that you can walk as he walks in holiness. I've already written to you about all of these things. So all of these things are kind of assumed in what I'm about to say here. I've written to you about recentering your life as a child of God on Jesus and I've written to you about all these things so that your joy would be made full. There's so much embedded in that statement, by the way, because the whole book of Galatians is about that statement. It's about a church that lots its joy because it moved its center, their heart, from Jesus onto other things, and they lost their joy. So Paul is writing the church to recenter the church on Jesus and the gospel so that joy would happen and that they would get to this point of 1 John 5 so that they could begin to pray the prayer of faith, having the will of God revealed in them so that they could be in sync with God's will. Look, James tells us that it's the humble heart that receives the word in God implanted in us. If I want the revealed will of God to dwell in me richly, if I want, like Peter says, the morning star that comes out of the word, Jesus himself to arise in my heart, if I want to hear the blood that speaks louder than the blood of Abel, if I want his spirit to bear witness with my spirit, I need to have humble soil so that that can implant in my heart. Because it's, as that implants in my heart, it comes as a grace of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, to pray the prayer of faith. I can't skip who I am and just grab onto the promises of God, living a life out of sync with the character and person of Jesus, claim the promises, and expect God to show up. That's not how it works. I first... I need to do the me work so that I can move into the, into the faith work, the prayer work, the me work. Lord, I'm, sa I'm sanctifying myself. I'm consecrating myself. I'm surrendering myself. I'm devoting myself to you 
so that now I can come into the sphere of doing the prayer work that you've called me to do because I ache for it, and this world is desperately in need of it. And what God has been asking me is this, is, Rick, how far can you take my promises? When he says, enlarge the the pegs of your tent, how far can you take that? Five feet? It's sort of like asking the the question, how many people can you feed with five loaves and two fish? Fifteen? Thirty-five? You're in the realm of of the supernatural. So there's almost no limit to it. If it does not depend on the man who wills, Romans 9, or the man who runs, but on the God who shows mercy, what's the limit to the mercy of God? How far can that go? This was the word God gave me in Isaiah when I was in YWAM. So, look, Rick, enlarge the pegs of your tent. You will not be put to shame. That's verse 4. That was my ver- That's what I came home with. I went all the way to Germany, did six months in YWAM to get one verse. Cost a lot of money, too, <laughs> to get that verse. But I believe that. It starts with the me work so that we can do the faith work, but then it's got to be followed by the footwork. And just look, Chad says this all the time. I've got it lodged in my brain. You've got to follow your prayers. You've got to be convinced of the word of God. Once God has spoken to you, he's called you to his promises, which means you need a well of promises to actually grab a hold of. What happened in that time? You can't hang out with Chad for the time like we did for the years that we did without those promises being embedded in you, right? Which is exactly what happened. You hide his word in your heart. The Lord begins to speak. He ignites a promise. He puts it in your hand. Lord, we're praying that because we believe you are the builder, rebuilder of the broken ruins of the city. Okay, yes, you've called on my name. You've been calling on my name for that. But now I'm calling you out of the boat to stand on that promise and go and, ga- and go do the work. Look, I live, in a, I live in a messed up neighborhood. I have a bullet hole in my house. We're in the worst part of Phoenix. I can have the faith that prays for my city to change and my neighborhood to change. And I can pray that all day, every day, when we pray. But at the end of the day, I have to follow my prayers into the neighborhood where God is going to move. He's not just chosen to use to make me different or to, he hasn't just simply called me to call on his name. He's actually appointed me to be his feet, right? We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. He's now also appointed me to be the means through which that change comes. I have to go. I look at a room like this, 50 people, and we think, what is the spiritual capacity of a room like this? I'm looking at five loaves and two fish. That's what I'm looking at. What can God do with five loaves and two fish? Most of us, when we think about a room like this, answer seven things. Well, a church of 50 people can only do this. A church of 50 people can only do that. 
it could be the case that the people are leading who, are, who will lead this group in nine months haven't come to faith yet. We're just not used to thinking that way. We're not used to, Lord, you can do exceedingly abundantly more. You can move the 750,000-pound rock in ways that I do not know. You can break, you can tear down strongholds. You can move through places. We're going to pray that way. We're going to believe that way. We're going to become the kind of people who can steward as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. We want to steward your glory, steward your promises. We want to be a people who are ready for every good work. But after we pray this, we're going to go believing that our five and our two can do exceedingly abundantly more than maybe what we've ever learned in 10, 20, 30 years in the church. This is what God is pressing on me. Have I gotten there? I'm going to be honest and say, I don't think so. But my wife and I are beginning to believe in a new kind of way. I, I don't think conventional methods are what this, the, the church needs right now. It's certainly not what the non-believing need, world needs to see in the church. Where Jesus prayed, hey, the non-believing world is going to come into the church and confess God is truly among you. Why? Because you pray crazy things. Crazy things happen. And the only thing that can explain that is the reality of a risen Savior. That's what Jesus says. That's your inheritance in the gospel. That's your inheritance. You may have gotten no inheritance. You may have a huge inheritance coming, whatever. It doesn't matter. It all pales in comparison to this inheritance that you have. You get to be a part of my body as I bring my kingdom to bear. Steward that grace. Steward that grace. All right, well, I'm at the end of my grace for this time, so let me just pray for this. Let me pray for us all in this. Father, you are a good God. And Lord, you rejoice over us to do us good. You do nothing else. And you rejoice over us to use us. And you give us the privilege of knowing you, of serving you, of walking in your power, of watching, of watching nations fall and bonds break and people rise from the dead in front of us as we call on you together in a prayer of faith. Lord, teach us what it is to be that kind of praying people. Teach us what it is to be a people who move mountains through prayer. Teach us what it is to be a people, Lord, filled with your spirit that pray in this kind of way. And then fill us, Lord. Even now, we just invite you to come and fill us with your spirit, Lord. And we thank you that you give good gifts to your people. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, Rick, for bringing the word. Can we just say thank you to Rick? That was amazing. I really like to, I know he just did the closing prayer, but I like, uh, I'm always a fan of, of 2 Corinthians 6, 16 through 7, 1, where it says, come out from among them and be separate. Touch no unclean thing and I'll receive you. I'll be a father to you. I'll live and walk among you. And those who receive these promises, let them purify themselves from all that contaminates spirit, soul, and body. 
not in any way to earn something because he, it's his righteousness that he gives us, but he wants us to respond and to, to not just stand in the grace of Christ, but let the grace of Christ move us forward in God's purposes and promises. And if you, if you want to come out from among them and just say, you know what? What he just shared on prayer was actually amazing. That was an amazing teaching on, on the prayer in that passage. But if you want God just to mark your heart, that you want to go on a journey, like he said, to have a well filled with the promises of God that you can bring before God with boldness and confidence. Can you just stand on your feet? Prayer is a thing that many of us feel like, I don't really know how to do it very good. I don't feel very confident or courageous. And a lot of it is because of what he just said on his first point, the me work. You don't know the promises because you haven't spent time maybe in, in, in receiving his promises. And so, Lord, I just thank you for this word, Lord, that's so provoking me. What are the promises that I'm praying over our church? What are the promises I'm praying over my family? What are the promises we're praying over our city? And so right now, just for 30 seconds to a minute, just, just begin to call on God's name in this room. Lord, show, Lord, I want to go on a journey with you. I want to know what you think about my marriage. I want to know what you think about my family. I want to know what you think about my neighborhood. I want, I want to know what you think about my boss or my colleagues and coworkers. I want to know what you've spoken over the five cities. I want to know what you've spoken over the Central Coast. I want to know what you want to do in California. Go as big or as small as you want. I want to know what you say over me. But Lord, I can't afford to just cruise by and not know your heart, your promises, and your word. Because Lord, without praying your will and your purposes and promises, Lord, what confidence can I stand on? What kind of courage and boldness when the going gets tough can I stand and not be moved though everyone else fall around me? So Lord, we stand as a, as a church right now. We want you to build us into what Jesus prophesied. My Father's house will be a house of prayer for all the nations. Jesus, you declared that. You spoke that word over your Father's house and we are your house. And so Lord, we've talked about prayer these last couple of weeks especially. I think we're going to keep drilling down because, Lord, I know I've, I'm just barely beginning to discover these promises and these riches in prayer. And so can we just lift, put our hands on our heart, just say, Holy Spirit, may my heart be your throne. May my heart be your home. Teach me to pray. Reveal your word on the inside of me so that I know your promises I know your will. I know and I love your word so that I can boldly pray and believe. So Holy Spirit, do a deep work right now this morning. And I receive your word. I receive your grace. And I thank you, Lord, for just pouring out your love in Jesus' name. I just, as we go, uh, I preached about 16 years ago. Uh, I don't remember the timeline. Probably Patty would know because I think she was in that same service. But I remember I preached at this old church that I was pastoring at called New Life, uh, one of the pastors there. And there was just an amazing weekend. It was like 13 years ago. It was so long ago. Here's why I believe in moments, what I'm getting ready to tell you. There was a guy in the audience named Larry who God touched him so deeply in one service. The grace he received, he stewarded. And he wrote, it was, he's like a writer and author but he wrote, I think he told me at one point, 450 days in a row from that Sunday gathering that God touched his heart. He had grace to do what he intended to do. He wrote devotions, a blog. Maybe you're like, who cares? 
I'm just saying moments like this matter for the journey that the Lord wants to take us on. All in favor, say amen. And so, Lord, whatever grace you want to release right now, I don't know why that story came to me. It matters when we make little choices in moments like these that you can give us grace to make another choice when we leave, when we wake up in the morning. So I just pray that you would deposit something of your grace in this specific realm of the promises of God and bold praying and believing. I pray that we would look back years from now and say, gosh, remember that, that Sunday. That Sunday when that word was given and I had faith to believe it was for me. So Lord, I just pray that you would impart that grace into our collective soil as a spiritual family. In Jesus' name, we all said amen. And amen. What I'm going to